Hello, friends. It's Ivy here on my solo podcast again. I'm not actually in Asia right now, as per the title of this episode, especially with the coronavirus and everything happening. I hope everyone here is staying safe. From here on out, I'm going to be interviewing non-technical leaders in Asia. I'll also be here every other week to help fill in the knowledge gaps and help you learn why you should be paying attention to what's happening in this region, how to take advantage of the opportunities, and if you choose so, how you can go work abroad in Asia and what that will be like. Last year, I was in Asia for five months, and three of them were spent in China. It was one of the most eye-opening experiences that I had all year. So today, I'm going to be here to talk about some of the opportunities that I saw in the country. Before we get started, however, the podcast community is finally launching this week. We'll be on Facebook because as much as I don't use Facebook that much anymore, I want this to be a global community. And you know what? People are still very much on Facebook everywhere else in the world. The best part about the Facebook community is it allows Zoom to live stream in. I'll be taking super advantage of this feature. My vision is to build a network of global-minded professionals who are making waves in the tech industry, those who think strategically and are interested in what the world will look like in the near and far future by looking at what regions and companies and people are doing today. Future tech companies will be global from the start, and the definition of tech companies is starting to blur. Like, are you a fintech company or a bank with a website? Am I right? The world needs leaders and entrepreneurs who understand multiple markets and can think across disciplines. I want to help you get access to information, network, and opportunities on a global scale so that you can accelerate your career. In the community, you'll get, number one, a network of like-minded individuals with diverse backgrounds, literally from all over the world, and experiences to learn from and grow with. Number two, bi-weekly market lessons and case studies for members by members via Facebook Live. We have a lot to learn from each other, and this community is your stage. I already have quite a few people lined up, starting with those based in Asia. Number three, monthly industry expert panels featuring two to three panelists in areas like e-commerce, social media, fintech, health tech, and more. Finally, number four, job board discussions, advice, exclusive events, and more as the network grows. We're building this community together, so you ask, and I'll try my best to deliver. We are launching now, so make sure you join us. Link is in the show notes. In order to keep this community running, however, and offer as many services as I hope to, the community will become a paid membership in three months. It is in beta now, so it's free for the next three months. So make sure that you join and soak up all the value that's coming up. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into Asia. Specifically, this episode, I'm going to be talking about the three months I spent in China and summarize what opportunities I see in that country. When I first went to China in April 2019, I was shocked by how little I knew about Chinese tech companies and consumer products. Even as a Chinese Canadian working in the U.S. at a cross-border company, Wish, which is in e-commerce and the most downloaded shopping app in the world, I paid very little attention to the Chinese e-commerce environment. Even though our supply chains based there, China and pretty much the rest of the world. This is because in Silicon Valley, we are all led to believe that this is the center of innovation, the tech capital of the world, and that is why I actually started this podcast first interviewing many 
different people based in Silicon Valley. But most of the people I ever interacted with, both coworkers and friends, only talked about the things happening within the 50-mile radius that makes up the Bay Area. Maybe we talk about a few things going on in Seattle and New York, but pretty much we thought that this was the place to be. And that's why I moved there in the first place. We read the discount codes during the wars between Lyft and Uber. We debated Snap versus IG stories and decided whether to order toilet paper on Amazon Prime Now or Google Shopping Express when we really needed it. We thought that there was no need to look out at the world and where the world could be going because we were right at the forefront, seeing what's next before anyone else does. The brief news coverage on international tech also made us believe that there's little really going outside of our bubble. I googled unicorns in China when I first went to China in April 2019 and came across the first hit, which is Wikipedia's list of global unicorns. At the time of this search, I could probably count all the public and private Chinese tech companies I knew on my fingers and toes. So I dare you to do the same. How many Chinese companies can you actually list? This proved to be really accurate because Wikipedia listed 227 Chinese unicorns and only 20 of them had any links to company pages or any other form of description, just any type of link at all. This meant that 207 Chinese companies valued at over 1 billion USD practically doesn't exist on the entire Western internet because everything is, that's worth knowing is on a Wikipedia, right? So how can we learn from the best, connect with the world, and increase global productivity if we don't even know what we don't know? So knowing that Wikipedia was potentially outdated, I dug a bit deeper. First, I looked at public companies. I found that China is home to two of the world's top 10 most valuable public companies by market cap. The U.S. has the other eight. But when it comes to the top 100 companies, China has a lot more catching up to do. The U.S. has 54 in the top 100, while China only has 12 as of 2018. However, Europe as a whole, all the countries in Europe only has 23, while China has 12. So China's getting there. In terms of private companies, I gather my data from CB Insights, which was updated in January of 2019, and Forward 2018, it's a Chinese unicorn research paper. It was fully in Chinese, and it was updated December 31st, 2018. Now, I'm stating these dates because what that means is that when I conducted my research, the 2019 tech IPOs are not updated in the data, meaning that Lyft and Zoom are still included in terms of private unicorns. I wanted to really see for myself that, like, what the state of future Chinese tech versus U.S. tech was going to be just based on the number of tech unicorns. What I found was that there are also 27 countries with at least one unicorn and six countries with over five. And those were the, of course, China, US, United Kingdom, India, South Korea, and Germany. Those all have over five unicorns. According to China's own numbers, there are 203 unicorn versus U.S. is 151, so there's more Chinese unicorns. However, CB Insights claims that there's only 82. Now, the discrepancy there is because um, for the two different Chinese numbers, 82 versus 203, is mostly due to the Chinese reports, including subsidiaries of public Chinese companies. For example, Ali Cloud, uh, which is a competitor of Google Cloud at this point, and 
or Amazon Cloud at this point, and non-Chinese companies like WeWork, there's a separate entity, WeWork China, that was registered within China. Since these subsidiaries are separate entities in terms of fundraising and investments, I pretty much conducted all my analysis based on the Chinese data of the 203 unicorns using forwards data instead of CB Insights. Now, the number of unicorns and valuations of these companies clearly show that China is catching up. In fact, Beijing now rivals the Bay Area as the tech capital of the world, being home to a whooping 87 unicorns against 88 in the Bay Area, just one apart. And we don't, I don't actually know the data for 2020 yet. The rest of China is coming in hot also before other U.S. cities. After Beijing of 87 unicorns, there's Shanghai with 40, Guangdong with 27, Zhejiang with 24, and then we get to New York with 14 and LA with 12. Regardless of thoughts around inflated valuations of private companies, this means that startups in Beijing and San Francisco have the culture and the capital to create the world's most valuable companies. So what does this mean for us, for you listeners, for me as a Canadian, Chinese, working in the US, having background in Silicon Valley, worked in tech for a few years, what can we actually expect from China? And are there any opportunities for us? After all, that is why I traveled to all these countries, because I wanted to know what I can do to really accelerate my career and whether I can catch on to some kind of trend and make my wealth in that way. Here's what I learned as I spent three months in China researching and speaking with dozens of people working in tech. Number one, Chinese companies move extremely fast. According to the Financial Times, half of the Chinese companies with over 1 billion in valuations, so the unicorns, they achieve unicorn status in two years or less compared to the typical nine-year period in the United States. Pinduoduo was only three years old when it IPO'd, raising $1 billion at a $33 billion market valuation through its IPO in 2018. This achievement has really set the bar for the next generation of Chinese tech IPOs. Everyone wants to go IPO within two to three years. The speed of growth is also a result of Chinese 996 work culture, which means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. This was recently cast into the spotlight when Alibaba's Jack Ma endorsed it. Few Western news outlets posted the original words when he said this back in, I believe, May 2019, but the full text in Chinese was actually really quite inspiring for me. One part that struck me was this line. I'm going to read it in Chinese first. 感也不错，这样的人满大街都能找到。which translates to, today, if we wanted to recruit someone who wanted eight-hour days, a nice office, nice benefits, nice cafeteria, an honorable-feeling job, these kinds of people are everywhere on the street. While in the West, we can follow the 80-20 rule, achieving 80% impact by doing 20% of the work. In China, with so many people and companies, being even minusculely better can mean success, or minusculely worse can mean failure. So everyone puts in maximum 120% effort. For the average person, if you can't deliver, there's always someone else in line for your job. China is so ridiculously competitive that while in the U.S. there may be 20 companies doing similar things, in China there may be 200 competing. In order to make it, you have to move faster, work harder, and be better at all costs. 
the amount of people, companies, and growth also means a surge of information and data too much that it creates a culture of super short attention spans. In order to stay ahead of competition and retain user interest, companies must launch features and push marketing campaigns much faster and more frequently than in the West. Where a brand in the West typically has one or two new campaigns per season or per quarter or at most, if not just one every six months, the Chinese counterpart would have six. This means three to six X the work, but also three to six X the iteration, fast failing and learning. Through these iterations, China is increasingly good at copying an idea, iterating hard and coming up with something much better and also extremely localized. In order to attract and retain users, promotions are also run at every opportunity, which is several times a month. A brand in the US may only have a Black Friday sale and perhaps another launch sometime. Any more than that in your inbox may be considered spam. This is not the case in China. Everything is always on sale in some way. This is to take advantage of any opportunity to grab user attention. Each month, a chart circulates in marketer communities with all the dates and campaign ideas you can run for the month. For example, May 1st, Labor Day, May 4th, Youth Day, May 12th, Mother's Day, May 14th, Summer Film Festival, May 17th, Foodie Day, and it goes on and on. There's about 10 to 15 every single month. Okay, now on to opportunities I see in this fast-moving Chinese market. With so many promotions, so many launches, so many competitors, that, that all results in so much data. The majority of Chinese companies from SMBs to corporations must run online and offline campaigns in order to stay in business. However, both in looking at data and speaking with people, there are very few SaaS businesses to help with data collection, analysis, visualization, or services in general. The number of Chinese unicorns by category ranks from cars and transportation with 27 unicorns, finance with 25, professional services 23, e-commerce 20, health and wellness 18, and it goes lower and lower, but we rarely see actually SaaS-based software being a unicorn in China in relation to this data that I've been looking at. And I believe that enterprise SaaS has not been successful in China for two reasons. Firstly, China has an abundance of cheap labor and has always mainly done many of the things advanced data software is able to do in the West. Eventually, there will be a tipping point where it will be more worthwhile to invest in technology over increasing the labor force, in which case-specific SaaS designed specifically for Chinese needs will be in demand. We saw this tipping point go in every single other region in the developed world sometime in the past as well. Another reason is data security and trust. Currently, many companies build their own infrastructure and analysis tools because it is not customary to outsource data or a lot of other things. There is less trust between people and companies in Chinese culture, which makes enterprise sales extremely difficult. If one can overcome these obstacles, and at some point we're all moving towards the right direction of building more trust and requiring more technology as employees cost more and more, there is definitely a mass market need for enterprise software as a service, especially with the mass market of data to be analyzed and the characteristic Chinese way of running operations, meaning lots and lots of promotions and campaigns, right? 
helping people solve problems using data will also always be a valuable skill set. So if you're coming from the West with this data skill set, you will be highly in demand in China as well. You don't need to go the entrepreneurship route. You can join a company working in this field or go and help Chinese company make sense of their data. The second characteristic I want to highlight that everyone talks about actually is that China obviously has a huge domestic market, but this domestic market shouldn't be seen as a just a giant you can just spray mass campaigns to. It's not a great performance marketing for way to tackle this market. That's not the best way to do things. According to the Chinese government, 802 million people are now actively using the internet. And still, that's only 58% of the population. People are coming online fast, but there's still a lot more to come. One big advantage that Chinese unicorns have over U.S. unicorns is their near exclusive access to a huge and growing domestic market of newly prosperous consumers with improving standards of living. China's National Bureau of Statistics states that consumer expenditures accounted for 59% of overall economic growth in China in 2017. Chinese companies are trying hard to capture the population just coming online. Demographics of those types of people are not necessarily living in the Beijing and Shanghai that most expats and foreign companies might target. But these new people coming online live in lower tier cities. Tiered cities in China is a business term. Businesses rank Chinese cities based on education, population, economic development, GDP, cultural development, and many other metrics on a scale of one through six. First tier cities are Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. These are more expat-friendly, abundant, wealthy cities. Although the population is very well split between the white-collar workers actually making a really great living and blue-collar workers coming from the countryside in hopes of opportunities at a better life. Second-tier cities are nearly just as affluent, including Hangzhou, home of Alibaba's HQ, Chengdu, Chongqing, Tianjin, etc. Then it goes to lower tier. By fourth tier, we are talking about cities that are less and less developed, with roads still being built and people moving from villages and towns and into city standard apartments. These are people that may not have finished middle school or high school, were farmers a generation ago, and now running small businesses, as well as a number of them are making a lot of money running factories and in construction. I'll have another podcast to dig deeper into tiered cities in the future. Companies are starting to become unicorns targeting specifically lower tier city demographics. People that are just starting to have expendable income and actually as the country gets wealthier, quite a lot of expendable income. There are many apps now designed specifically for these lower tier cities with the giants being Pinduoduo in e-commerce featuring group buying and ridiculously cheap products. They're successful because of China's already sophisticated supply chains. Tiao is the same as Toutiao, which is ByteDance's part of their family of apps, but with content and news specifically for what lower tier cities might care about, such as health benefits of green bean porridge for the grannies in these lower tier cities. And Billy Billy in entertainment is the main live streaming app there because 
Chinese companies are able to really segregate and really niche down on the demographic that they're talking to. And that's why they are successful instead of targeting China as a mass domestic market. Companies within China are all sending market researchers into these lower tier cities to better understand and know how to monetize on this growing market. Another demographic with increasing spending power is China's 95 and so post 95 and post 2000 babies. And this is what in the West we would call Gen Z. In China, a generation is five years apart instead of 20, like millennials, boomers, etc., because the market changes so fast. The upbringing and culture each generation grows up with is so vastly different. The demographic of Gen Zs are now entering the workforce, just starting to enter the workforce, but they have much more spending power than people born even in the 80s, even though people born in the 80s have been working for much longer. This is because Gen Zs are more likely to be the only child of only children. Let's say their parents were born in the late 70s. Before their grandparents can give their parents a sibling, in 1980, China enforced a one-child policy. The wealth in China is in its real estate. Living costs are low as long as you own property, and it's nearly right now impossible for any young person to buy property anymore in the first and second tier cities, with a two-bedroom apartment in central Beijing going up for one to four million USD. And the starting salary of a white-collar worker right out of school is about 5,000 RMB or around 700 USD per month. However, for the only children of only children, they are, sent, they are set to inherit their parents' home, both of their grandparents' homes, and possibly more homes since grandparents who were displaced from the land before apartments were built were usually granted two apartments instead, and these apartments have really soared up in price over the last 20 years. Regardless, that's millions and millions of dollars in USD. As Gen Z and post-90s, grow up, they care more about experiences. They were educated and grew up fast in a fast-paced, wealthier China and have expendable income for themselves. And as they start having kids in a China that's no longer a one-child policy rule in place, they will really start spending. This will create a mass market for consumer goods targeted at Gen Z and also maternity and children's products as the wealthy generation starts having more kids. So how can those outside of China take advantage of all these Chinese consumers? As companies begin to build all these different personas and segregate the mass consumer market into very specific niches, new tools will be created, new marketing platforms, new consumption content platforms will be created to reach these markets that foreign companies can also leverage. For example, Feel Unique, Europe's largest premium beauty e-tailer, learned from the Pinduoduo playbook of group buying. Feel Unique launched a six-day sale on WeChat mini programs, which is a WeChat has its own set of apps within. You can build an app within the WeChat ecosystem. So that's where many programs come in. I can touch on that later on in a blog post or in another podcast. But they really took advantage of this playbook and group buying and set their product prices as reduced based on, which keeps on reducing based on how many friends any user invites to join. There are so many opportunities to leverage growing Chinese platforms with 
billions of users. Yes, like WeChat has 1 billion daily active users. As domestic brands are engaging customers on every platform, WeChat, ByteDance's family of apps like Douyin and Toutiao, other live streaming apps, social commerce apps, and in O2O, which is online to offline events, in order to get products in front of customers, these platforms will grow ever more sophisticated. So the sooner foreign companies can utilize the same tools to reach customers, understand customers, empathize, and understand Chinese consumers, the more opportunity there will be in this growing market. Finally, the third characteristic or trend that I saw was that Chinese companies are going global. Chuhai means going overseas. It was the hottest term in China tech in 2019, and everyone was talking about it. In the PwC report on Chinese unicorns, where 101 CEOs of unicorn companies were interviewed, 70% already had plans or strategies for overseas expansion, despite the huge potential of the China's domestic market. China's Belt and Road Initiative, which emphasizes innovation based on open cooperation, is one factor in encouraging international growth, particularly for unicorns in the technology, media, and TMT industries as China builds this road all the way to Africa. It's not a surprise that Chinese companies will expand overseas. If we look at the most valuable companies in the world, including the top U.S. unicorns like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Uber, Palantir, Airbnb, they are all in multiple markets. ByteDance, as one of the most valuable Chinese unicorns, is taking the strategy of launching the same product branded differently for separate markets. You've probably heard of TikTok already. It's the same as Douyin. They do a lot of testing in China on its Chinese native app first. And they're also launching Lark, which is a competitor for Slack, and it's called Feishu in China. DJI is by far the most popular and well-known drone brand in the U.S. and in the West, and few know that it's actually a unicorn based in Shenzhen. Although I believe the term made in China will have completely different connotations within the next five years, because after all, most luxury brands use Chinese factories and supply chain. So Chinese people really have the technology and knowledge to make great products. And most domestic products are actually really amazing at this point. Many Western consumers may use products also that they don't even know are Chinese. And that is the Chinese marketing play. There are huge opportunities to help Chinese companies go global. Most of China's new unicorns are still relatively unknown in other countries. They face numerous challenges, particularly as they grow and their need for talent and other resources scale up. Some of the top founders are sea turtles, which means that they are returnees from overseas with a Western education and work experience. And that experience may help Chinese companies really fare better in foreign markets than U.S. companies did when entering China. With the U.S. visa and immigration laws getting stricter, the Chinese economy was booming up until pretty recently, and the standard of living increasing in China, many who went abroad for study or work are choosing to come back. This unique group of sea turtles have linguistic, cultural, and ethnic affinity with China, but have also been educated and adapted in Western culture, making them bilingual and bicultural. As the world begins to globalize, there will be an increasing need for people who, to help bridge linguistic and cultural gaps and help China expand overseas. There will be both local roles to be filled in the target market and project management, decision-making, and communication roles to be filled in HQ back in China. 
there will be even more agencies, consulting firms, and people who will play the middleman, helping companies globalize, not only from China outwards, but across all markets. Beyond such roles, as unicorns grow, they create markets for new innovations that will serve their needs. Look at what kind of ecosystem Uber or Salesforce created, right? Furthermore, emerging markets are where the next billion consumers are. I'm talking about Southeast Asia, South America, and Africa. As these markets grow, businesses will be drawing inspiration from dominant players who had already underwent rapid growth, meaning they're more likely to learn from China over Silicon Valley in the U.S. Having a global outlook and network will also create opportunities to bring valuable lessons from established markets to emerging ones. So that's it. That was my summary on the three opportunities I truly saw that if you wanted to go global and catch the rise of China. Number one, as Chinese companies move fast, there will be more of a need for B2B tools. China rose because of the growing consumers coming online in a huge domestic market. These B2C companies that really brought up China's tech ecosystem will eventually need services, tools, and products that can be served by B2B, primarily in the data segment. The domestic market is also something many outsiders are trying to penetrate to capture some of the spending. WeChat many programs, Douyin and Xiaohongshu, or anywhere Chinese consumers spend their time where Chinese companies advertise require different strategies. And this is something that we will talk about in the future. Actually, in about three weeks, I recorded a podcast with Fabian, the founder of Uplab, a Douyin agency, and we talk just about how different the customer buying journey is in China versus the U.S. and what Western companies can do to target these Chinese consumers. Finally, tomorrow's world will be more likely open than closed. The next billion-dollar companies will be global from the start, requiring global-minded talent. It's the opportunity of our generation, if you're bilingual and bicultural, to go and help emerging market technologies expand to the rest of the world. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, give me a follow, a review, and from now on, join the Facebook community. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.